Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, all 16 verses. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ, excuse me, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a language of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hiding, that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. God bless the reading and hearing of his word. My table's a little smaller today, but that's okay. Um, I had one of those aha moments this week when I was trying to plan the children's message. Um, and so here it is. How many of you like optical illusions? Yeah? <laughs> optical illusions are kind of fun. Um, sometimes we look at a picture. I'm sure you've all seen this one before. What is it a picture of? Hmm? A young lady. Does everybody see the young lady, or do some of you see an old lady? Hmm? Young lady or old lady? What do you think? Young lady or old lady? Yes. (laughs) Well... If you see the young lady, you see that this is her eye, and this is her cheek. 
just her hair and a feather in her hat, which comes down over the back, and her chin. If you see the old lady, then these are her eyes, this is her nose, and that's her mouth. You see that? Yeah. Sometimes people get angry when they, they say, no, it's a young lady. No, it's an old lady. Well, how about this one? This one's kind of a, a rabbit? A duck. Well, which is it, a rabbit or a duck? Both. It's a rabbit? How many think it's a rabbit? How many think it's a duck? Okay. Rabbit or duck? Well, if you think it's a duck, this is its bill, and there's its eye. If you think it's a rabbit, there's its nose and its eye, and these are its ears. Okay. All right. What do you see? Two faces? A vase. Two. A boat? A bug. It look, does look like a bug. It could be a bug. Uh, well, if I do... that... Now, it's clearly two faces. Clearly. There's no, no doubt. Everybody sees two faces there, right? All right. If I do that, now it's clearly a vase or a candlestick or a cup or some sort of thing that's not two faces. And I was thinking, as I was reading the Corinthians passage this week, that we're a lot like that. We see things differently. Some of us saw the candlestick right away. Some of us saw the faces right away. And we're neither wrong nor right. Because it's both. It just depends on the Spirit and what the Spirit fills in for us. The Spirit says, today, it's a candlestick. Maybe tomorrow, it's two faces. It's still the same picture, but the Spirit fills in the gaps and helps us understand. I don't know what you're thinking. You don't know what I'm thinking. But if we have the Holy Spirit, we're going to be thinking alike because he's going to fill in so that we get the picture of what he wants. I also thought a little bit, and this is a little bit kind of a stretch, but the, uh, is it the Matthew passage talks about Jesus coming to fulfill the law, not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. And it's almost like this picture isn't quite complete. It needs Jesus to complete the picture, the Spirit to complete the picture so that we know what we're looking at. And so when he does complete the picture... We know what we're looking at. Kind of, kind of interesting. And with the Spirit, we can all see together. We still might disagree, but the Spirit helps us see what the other person is seeing. And I think that's a, what the message is today. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that the Spirit can fill us, can help us to see with your eyes. 
We know that we don't always agree. We know we see things differently, but with your help, we can see things together. We might still see, see things one way or another, but now with your spirit, we can see it both ways. Once we see it your way, we can't unsee it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that um, you will help us to think like you're thinking and hear what you're saying and take it into our lives um, and live it out in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was 24, I moved to, for four months to Prospect Heights, Illinois to uh, participate in a training program before I went to London to be a missionary for what ended up being five and a half years. Um, part of the training involved living in a house with a whole bunch of other people that I didn't know and trying to make that type of community work. It was challenging. Um, I was one of the youngest people in the house and the mission board decided to make me the house leader and that was a stretching opportunity. Um, <laughs> I won't say I did a great job, but I think it was really a good experience overall. Um, but another part of that training involved going to classes, like if you were in school or something, and sometimes it would be about if you needed to learn another language, what were some skills to bring into language learning, and other times it would be, we would talk about the Bible, we would have some kind of intense Bible study, and other times we would talk about theology and the way that we understand the Bible and, and different doctrinal beliefs, and the guy that taught the theology classes was a guy named Rich, and he was one of these sort of dry-humored, self-deprecating people, um, super smart, nice guy, but he would always teach us something, and then he'd ask us a question, and there would be dead silence, and he'd say, think like I'm thinking. <laughs> it became a, a joke think like I'm thinking. Everybody would say it. Um, and, but I was pretty good at thinking like Rich was thinking, because I guess our brains worked similarly, and so I could usually come up with the answer that he was looking for. I feel like that is sometimes, well, that might sometimes be what I do here when I ask questions. <laughs> I'm asking you to think like I'm thinking, but I think ideally what we all as followers of Jesus need to do is learn more and more to think like Jesus is thinking. That sounds like it could be a tall order. In present-day psych psychological terms, we might say we need to retrain our neural pathways. You may have heard that if you um, spend most of your life thinking in a certain way, your brain actually creates these kind of, it's almost like paths in your brain, and so if you try to start thinking a different way, it's really hard because your mind is used to just, it's kind of like when you're driving in your car and you're trying to go someplace, but you don't usually go there, and so you autopilot to someplace that you do usually go, which happens to people that are absent-minded like me, or if you can't talk and drive at the same time, which is also a problem. <laughs> um, and so we all have been born into a sinful world from 
sinful parents and we ourselves are sinful. And so even when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and he has rescued us from our sins and we are forgiven, it takes a while for our brains and the rest of ourselves to start redirecting in the way that God wants us to go. But the thing is, and I'll tell you this in psychological terms too, if you manage to retrain the way you think about things, you will actually start to behave differently. So if your brain normally says, I'm a horrible person, I hate myself, I, don't, I, I can't do anything right, but then you, for example, you come to know Christ and Christ shows you that you are beloved, you don't have to become arrogant, but you can start to say, I am a beloved child of God and I can do these things that God is empowering me to do, and you can start to be more who you really are. You can, you will, your behavior will change depending on how you think. This is true in the life of faith, too. The more we begin to think like Jesus, the Son of God and our Messiah, the more we will act like him. And this is the goal of the Christian life. We are supposed to be little messiahs in the world. We're supposed to be not by ourselves. Obviously, that's idolatry and pride. But the Holy Spirit in us wants to put us out into the world to show people who Jesus is through our own lives. And so the goal for us, and what we're going to be focusing on today, is the mind of Christ. We want to have, we want to think like Jesus is thinking so that we can start acting like Jesus is acting. It's actually possible to follow Jesus and not, and still not think like he's thinking. You can say, I'm going to follow him and I'm going to I'm going to just, I'm just going to follow him. I'm going to read this book, and I'm going to do all the things that it says, and not, we've talked about this already this year, um, if we just know about him and about what the, word, the Bible says, and we don't actually know him, and we're not letting him um, show us who we are and show us who he is in real life, so to speak, we can still not actually gain the mind of Christ. We can read the word with our own mind still. So our main passage for today is from 1 Corinthians again, but we're going to take a quick look at the passage we read in our responsive reading from Matthew 5. That's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And in this passage, Jesus tells us that he did not come to do away with the law and the prophets, meaning, in his case, the Hebrew scriptures. There was no New Testament at that time. Um, we call it the Old Testament. He didn't come to do away with those things, and he warns against ignoring or um, negating, contradicting parts of it ourselves, and even more against teaching others to do the same. So I need to assure you, I take that warning really seriously. <laughs> and so um, we may not always interpret things the same way, but please believe me when I tell you I am Really, I never want to tell you, don't obey the word of God. <laughs> that, if that's what it sounds like I'm saying, or if, I ever, if, if it ever sounds like I'm saying that we don't need to pay attention to this part of the Bible, that's not what I'm saying. Please let me know that I'm not being clear. <laughs> um, but, and in fact, Jesus tells us we need to practice 
the law and the prophets. We need to teach them. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. But here's the crazy thing. In the end, it was these righteous Pharisees and teachers of the law, the people who in that day you could call them, they were the back to the Bible people. They took the Bible really seriously. They were all about the Bible. They were all about bringing people back to God. And they were the ones who didn't understand what Jesus was about. And they were a big part of the reason, not the only reason, but a big part of the reason, he was crucified. So, with all that being true, how should we interpret this? Yeah, it's hard, right? <laughs> right. Ron's afraid to answer because I asked a trick question last week. Um, but also, I didn't answer my own question last week very well. So, so fair enough. And it's hard. I, like, how do we interpret this? We need to think like Jesus is thinking, and we need to remember that Jesus himself is the word of God. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the divine human outliving of the scriptures. So, everything in scripture has to be interpreted in light of him. That's why we need to think like he's thinking. Not one bit, according to Jesus, not one bit of the law or the prophets is going away, but he fulfilled it in his life. He did it perfectly. And, strangely enough, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and people like them did not recognize that he was fulfilling it. They thought he was telling them to go against it. And in the rest, of, we didn't read this part, and we're not going to today, although there's some of it next week, but in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he, like he says, don't set aside any part of the law, I've come to fulfill it, and then he says, you've heard that it was said, do not murder, but I tell you, and you've heard that it was said, you know, love your neighbor, or love your friend and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. So it sounds like he's saying, don't ever uh, do away with the scripture, but... I'm telling you what it really means, and it's not what you thought. We need to think like he's thinking. The Pharisees and the people like them, and sometimes the people like us, even today, thought he was breaking the law and the prophets the whole time while he was fulfilling it. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and sometimes church leaders today, and sometimes regular church people today, try to interpret and keep the law by defining it down to the last detail, coming up with every possible situation in which this law might kind of maybe apply, and making up how this law applies in this situation, in that situation, in this other situation. But while they were doing that, they spent all their time doing that, but while they were doing it, they never tapped into the spirit of the law, which is, in fact, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures according to the spirit of the law, because he is one with the spirit of God. He is one with God. The law, the spirit of the law, is what Jesus says when asked 
what are the great, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, which also means you need to love yourself, not in a narcissistic, self-obsessed way, but you need to have a, a right thinking about yourself and, care, and know who you are so that you can, you can love your neighbors and love God. That's the law. Love God, love your neighbor and yourself. The prophets are summed up in Micah 6, 8, which we read last week. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. God's law is expansive. It's freeing. The youth group met this week, and they were apparently talking about Isaiah 58, 1 through 9, which is one of the readings that we didn't read in this service. But that's a, I recommend, if you haven't read it in the Bible reading challenge, I recommend going and reading it later, uh, because basically God is saying, look guys, you're doing all this religious stuff, you're fasting, you're offering sacrifices, you're doing all the things that are written down in the law, but you're not loving me while you're doing it, you're certainly not loving your neighbor, you're taking advantage of people, you're oppressing them, you're cheating them out of hard-earned money, you're being, you're being unfaithful to your spouses, like, that, that's not what I want. I want you, I want your heart. So this is the tension that we have when, kind of like the optical illusions, we look in the law and we see one thing, and it's not that that thing isn't there, it's there, but there's more. And the more is not more restrictive, like the Pharisees were trying to do. It's more expansive, but it also takes up more of our lives. In 1 Corinthians, we've just been, last week we talked about the foolishness of God. And somebody said, that's just such a weird phrase, it sounds blasphemous or it sounds heretical. What do you guys think? Is it disrespectful to talk about the foolishness of God? Okay. Yeah. Paul, Apostle Paul is saying, think like I'm thinking. <laughs> Let's, he's, he's, take, he's making up this crazy phrase, the foolishness of God. Is God foolish? No. Of course he's not. God's not foolish. But Paul's say, saying something that makes us go, wait a second, what? And pay attention. To what he's really trying to say. And so all of the last passage that we read last week was all about, the, he just talks about the foolishness of God over and over and over again. And so when we get to this chapter, chapter 2, in verse 1 he says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. So he's saying God's ways seem foolish to our normal human brains, and I came to you, Corinthian people, when I showed up, I came the same way. I wasn't fancy, I wasn't flashy, I didn't have super great evangelistic apologetic arguments. Um, in the previous chapter, he talked about how Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, and so um, he's, he, he uh, planted a church in Corinth that was both Jewish, there were both Jewish people and Greek people, Gentile people in this church, and 
that in itself is an expression of the foolishness of God because we know historically, but also we just know it from real life, it is really hard to put two totally opposite types of people in the same community and have it work. So that's crazy. But he's also saying, I didn't bring the flashy miracles that the Jewish people wanted, and I didn't bring all the, the logic and the philosophy and all that smart stuff that the Greek Gentile people wanted. I just preached Jesus. I resolved to know nothing. This was a smart guy, but I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The good news of Jesus dying for our sins and also the good but seemingly foolish news of a humble God who would make himself one of us and allow himself to be crucified by us. This is not what you would expect of a god or a ruler. The Jews didn't expect it of their god, the true god, and the Gentiles, their gods were nuts. Have you ever read Greek mythology? It's messy. <laughs> so that was not um, what you would expect of a god, and it's certainly not what they would expect of their rulers. In verse 3, Paul says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. This is also, so being crucified is not what you would expect of a god. And one of God's great apostles, you would not expect to come with weakness and great fear and trembling. You wouldn't expect this of a great church planter or a megachurch pastor or a great theologian or an evangelist. This is not what you would expect. In verses 4 and 5, he says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So this is interesting, because he didn't bring any signs, any supernatural signs, and he didn't bring any philosophy and logic, just Jesus and his, him crucified, but somehow the Spirit showed up. Somehow the Spirit's power was obvious, maybe in the person of Paul himself, the way that it was clear that he loved Jesus and that Jesus was with him. We don't know. In Acts 18, there's no stories about any fancy, flashy miracles that he did, like some of the other towns that he visited. But somehow, Paul cooperated with God's Spirit, and God's Spirit worked in the Corinthian people's hearts too, and that caused them to believe. The foolishness of God is that by using unlikely nobodies, God gets the glory and we get the benefit. But we also get to glorify God too. In Matthew 5, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, he says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The glory gets shared around by God to us. That also is foolishness, by the way. Divine foolishness. It's awesome, but it's crazy. <laughs> we don't deserve that glory, but God wants us to have it. In 1 Corinthians 2.6, Paul says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined 
for our glory before time began. So he finally takes the tension out of the foolishness of God idea. He says, look, God's not really foolish. It just doesn't make any sense according to the wisdom of us, of our wise people, of our age, of our world. Um, God's wisdom you can only understand through the Spirit, and you can only understand through maturity in God's Spirit. But God has destined it for our glory before time began. Then he talks about, well, I'm trying to decide if I'm going to go here. This is going to make our message a little bit longer, but I think it matters. I have mentioned here before there was, there's a philosophy called Gnosticism. You may have heard of it. It still exists. But it started right around this time period uh, that Paul is writing, and some of the other apostles write against it in their letters. They don't name it Gnosticism, but they talk about it. And it's important to mention here because it does still exist today, and one of the things that's important to Gnostics is that there is this secret, hidden, divine wisdom. And so it can be a little confusing because Paul is talking about mysterious wisdom that God has. So, in Gnosticism, here's the basics that we need to understand. It's super complicated, but here's the least complicated version. Matter, material things, the stuff that you can see and touch and taste and feel, everything that your five senses, four senses, (laughs) five senses can perceive, is bad. And in Gnosticism, everything that's spiritual is good. And also in Gnosticism, this is a little less known, but the God of the Old Testament is bad, is an evil God. There's some other God that's greater than that God, and that's an evil God, and Jesus is good. Let me ask you something. Have you ever heard anything like that before? Have you ever heard anyone say the God of the Old Testament is mean? Okay. All the time. Right. Yeah. And here's what else happens in Gnosticism. There is a hierarchy of people. And so there's, there are certain races of people that are spiritually enlightened, and they're always going to be spiritually enlightened, and there are other races that will never, ever be able to be spiritually enlightened. So, does that sound familiar? How about women will be completely annihilated. Everybody is going to become male at the end of days, because women are nothing. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) No? (laughs) You've never heard of misogyny at all? (laughs) It's not the definition of it, but it's an extreme conclusion of it. There are, in Gnosticism, there are exceptions to the law of God, and there are grace for some and not for others, and that's the hidden wisdom, basically. It is possible to read the whole Bible and actually get the impression that the Bible teaches this because Gnosticism is a parasite on 
good, on the good truth of God's word. And so, even though apostles like Peter and John and Jude warn against the Gnostic secret knowledge, it sneaked into the church already at the very beginning, and it still influences Bible preaching and teaching today. Even people who love Jesus and, and know Jesus, we get this stuff that just filters down, and we're not even aware of it because we don't know where it came from, and we think that we see it in Scripture. That is important to know because it affects how we read and it affects how we think, and so it means that we have to really pay attention when we're reading to what the Spirit is saying to our spirits. And it also means we need to remind ourselves that that is not the secret wisdom that Paul is talking about here. In fact, Gnostic secret wisdom is the secret underlying what Paul calls the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of the age. And there's actually not that much secret about it. We see it affecting things in this world in sinful ways all the time. This kind of secret knowledge that Gnosticism promotes is the using of things of God to exploit people, to get power for oneself, to avoid getting to know who we really are in God, to avoid humility and serving others, and also to prevent others from encountering and reflecting the glory of God. If there are some people in the world who are, it's just impossible, they will never be able to encounter God, then we will not provide ways for them to do that. And we might actually create systems that make it very hard for them to do that. This Gnostic idea, this making everything material bad and everything spiritual good, which is not accurate, that is the temptation at the heart of creation, and it is most effective when it is directly attacking what is closest to the heart of God. So the enemy's desire is to take the most pure, wonderful, great thing of God and destroy it, especially destroy it. But if he can't destroy it, he will twist it or smudge it or make it so we can't really tell where God is or that it's really from God or how, how God thinks. This is how it happened that Bible-believing Pharisees and people like us ended up putting the heart of God, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, on a cross. This is what the devil was trying to do. Destroy the heart of God. But the wise foolishness of God turned even that upside down for his glory and our good. And we would have never thought of it. We cannot think like God is thinking by ourselves. Even the spiritual powers, the rulers of this age, and we talked about those a lot when we were talking about Ephesians last year, even the spiritual powers cannot think like God is thinking. Paul says, if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If the spiritual powers had known how God was going to turn things upside down for his glory and our good when they, put his, when they encouraged humans to put his son on the cross, they would have never done it. Because that is how we are freed we are able to receive God's spirit. We are forgiven for our sins. 
we are able to walk in the Spirit and able to think like God is thinking. Who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them, says Paul. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We can't judge another person's heart or spirit because we don't know what's in it. P.S. Even if the Holy Spirit gives you the gift of discernment, you cannot fully know what is in somebody else's heart or spirit. I need to remind myself of that because I'm pretty good at discerning things about people, but I know, I don't know everything that's going on in you or between you and God, and I cannot make assumptions about that. Nobody can. So that's the first thing. But here's another thing. We don't know what's in our spirits except our, what's in other people's spirits except only our own spirits, but frankly, a lot of us aren't brave enough to face what's in our own spirits either. We don't know what's in there. Which is why it's tempting to judge someone else's. I don't want to look inside and find out what's in here, so I'm going to find out what's bad about you. Why, what's wrong with what you think? This is why people who claim to follow Jesus but have not gotten honest with Jesus and themselves continue to double down on legalism even when they know about Jesus' death and resurrection and can tell you what every single Greek word in the New Testament means and can explain grace like they're a dictionary. If we refuse to be open to what's going on in God's spirit and then our own, we will not be able to be free to fulfill the law through God's Spirit the way Jesus wanted us to and the way Jesus did. But we don't have to be like that because God has done this crazy foolish thing. He has made his own spirit, the mind of our divine human Messiah, accessible to us by coming to live. His own spirit lives in our spirit when we trust him and trust what he did for us on the cross. He has, for whatever reason, God has chosen for us to learn to listen to his spirit and gain his mind through each other. I don't know if you remember, a couple weeks ago I said that when we pray and, we and we're sincerely asking God, we're being authentic before God, and we ask God for wisdom about a situation, and then somebody else is doing the same thing, and we come together, and we still have two different ideas... One of us might be wrong, or both of us might be wrong, or maybe we just don't have the whole picture because we do have the Spirit of God, but we don't, and we are growing in the mind of God, but we're never going to be able to encompass all of the mind of God, right? God is God, and we're not, and we need each other, and this is why we have church, and why we talk about Scripture together, and why we have Bible study, and why we're having teaching before church now, and because we need to see how each other is reading Scripture. There is more in there than meets the eye, and there's more to the life of God than meets the eye, and no one of us is going to get it right all the time. And so it's challenging to be in a community like this and to try to be united to each other and to try to um, be, as Paul said a few chapters ago, perfectly united in mind and spirit. That seems impossible and it is impossible on our own. But it is really the goal of the church. Unity in Christ is the starting point 
for these communities, and it is the goal. These are the things, Paul says in verse 10, God has revealed to us by his Spirit. Not to me. He could say, he's an apostle, he could say, this is what God revealed to me, and I'm going to tell it to you. No, this is what God revealed to us. And these are the things. The wisdom of God, which looks foolish from a worldly perspective. The intersection of justice and mercy, which you wouldn't think would go together, but they do on the cross of Jesus. When Jesus says no part of the law or the prophets will be removed, he's not saying he wants a whole lot of rigid religious observance. This is the opposite of what he wants. Those things lead to all the things that I've been preaching against the last couple of weeks, quarreling and strife, exploitation of others, manipulation, assuming the worst of each other, gossip, backbiting, backbiting, a critical spirit, all of these things, that's what comes from rigid legalism. And that's what Jesus came to confront when he was talking to the teachers of the law. This is the way a lot of us are. This is the way a lot of Christians are, a lot of churches are. And we do it in the name of Jesus because a lot of times because we don't know better. But this does not exhibit the mind of Christ. With the Holy Spirit's help, let's not revert to these patterns of the world's wisdom, to the rulers of the age. Instead, let's think like Jesus is thinking, interpreting Scripture together through the spirit of the law, his spirit of love, justice, and mercy together. It's hard work. It is crucifying work. If we're going to be like Christ, it means we are going to be experiencing self-sacrifice as we try to come together as a community. It was crucifying work for Jesus to start this, but we're trying to think like he's thinking, and it's worth it. It was worth it to him. It will be worth it to us. Let's pray. Actually, Lord, I have no words, but thank you for your foolishness, which is wisdom beyond anything we could have imagined. We ask that you will help us to remember you as we take communion together and as we go forward into our week, and that you will bring us to full unity in Jesus Christ. Amen.